I want to say a name to you. See if you know who this guy is. If any of you know who this is, I would be like utterly shocked. I'd probably faint on the spot. His name is Evagrius Ponticus. Evagrius Ponticus. First of all, the name, who would like that sort of name? That would be a, a terrible name. Evagrius Ponticus. He um, was one of the desert fathers, which means he lived in the Egyptian deserts um, around the, the second and third um, centuries AD. He lived in a, a retreat in a, a monastery, spent much time in prayer meditation. Of all the desert fathers, uh, this man wrote more than anybody else. He was a very influential theologian in his days. Um, and uh, his most famous work that he did was categorizing uh, the root causes of temptation. And he came up with eight terrible temptations, is what, what he called them, from which all of our sinful behavior springs. So I'm not sure if you're, you understand where we're going here a little bit. But he was kind of the seed. Eight terrible temptations. And then in 590 AD, Pope Gregory I combined all these eight to create a list of seven. And these seven are known today as the, help me Ryan, the seven deadly sins. Who can name the seven deadly sins? Or one of them? We'll just try. We'll try. Go ahead. Can you get one, Jake? Jake. Gluttony is good. Huh? Greed is one. Anger is not one. That is a sin. Yes. Pride is one. Murder is not one. Sloth. It's appropriate you know that one, huh, Jared? (laughs) Yes. Envy, yes. I think we got five of them. Lust. You guys are great. We got one more. No. No. I said pride. Wrath. That's amazing. I, I could not have done that earlier in the week. The seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, wrath. Sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And since the days of Pope Gregory, these have been used far and wide as as different categories of sin. And and particularly the Roman Catholic Church uses these things or has used them from time to time in terms of dealing with a confessional. When you go in and you need to confess your your sins to a priest, which you don't, by the way, right? There's one mediator between God and man, the the man Christ Jesus. But thinking through sin to to confess, these are, are good categories uh, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the parson, in his little tale, he mentions these seven deadly sins. Um, and also their opposite remedies of humility, contentment, patience, fortitude, mercy, moderation, and chastity. Dante's Inferno has these sins mentioned as well as, as forming various terraces in, again, non-biblical doctrine of, of purgatory, but, uh, but, but just these terraces of, of trying to get out a purgatory, you've got to overcome all these levels of, of pride and, and uh, envy and wrath and sloth and greed and gluttony and lust. 
much artwork has been based on these seven sins. If we had technology work, I'd show you a, a diagram and a picture there. We have different animals representing different um, sins where the toad represents greed and the snake represents envy and a lion represents wrath and a snail represents sloth and the pig gluttony and the, the goat lust and the peacock pride. Well, this morning we're going to look at seven deadly sins. Not the historic categorization that developed by theologians made popular by writers and artists, but a biblical categorization compiled by Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 6. You can turn in your Bibles if you want there to Proverbs chapter 6. If you haven't opened your Bible yet, I would encourage you to now. We're going to look at verses 12 through 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, just really encourage you in the one of the chairs in front of you, there's a Bible. You can turn to page 531, where it speaks about these six, seven deadly sins. Verse 12, let, let's read it here. It goes like this. Solomon writes to his son, who he desperately wants to walk in the way of righteousness. He says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, With perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. In verse 16, we see the, the categorization of these seven sins. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, seeing these seven things, seeing these things, you, you would need to understand their poetry. And, and you ought not to think that there are six things in one category and maybe a seventh that is extra special. Um, you would be in error if you try to find out what's, what's the distinction of that last one. Because this is a common poetical style, just introducing a list. Uh, like in Proverbs 30, we see this over and over again. I think about five times in Proverbs 30, we read things like this. Proverbs 30, verse 18. Three things are too wonderful me for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. And it's not that he, he understood the three but the, or he, they were high, but the fourth one he didn't understand. It's just that there are four things that are in that category. Or Proverbs 30, 21 through 23. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he's filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Just there are three things, but then there are four all in the same category. And so likewise here, though there are, though there are six things that specifically says God hates and seven that are an abomination to him, hate and abomination are synonyms, we've got a list of seven. It's, it's a list. And in our text, we see a list of seven deadly sins. The Lord hates all of these sins. Now, these aren't the only sins that the Lord hates. There are others in the Bible, so it's not an exhaustive list. Um, the Lord hates hypocritical worship. Isaiah 1, verse 14. Though he commanded, he said, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. 
They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. He, he commanded them to come together to worship him in these new moons and these feasts. And yet God says, I hate them because they were hypocritical in the days of Isaiah. The Lord hates divorce, Malachi 3, 2, 16. The Lord hates devious people, Proverbs 3, verse 32. So these aren't the only things that God hates, but they are seven things that, that God hates. And this morning we're going to look at these seven things. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to run evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sorts discord among brothers. And when it comes this morning to application, I really have two questions for you, which I'm going to continue to pound in my, my message today is this. Do you hate what God hates? Do you hate what God hates? I mean, this isn't merely a list for us, a list of, for us to know. The list is here to stir in all of us a similar hatred in our hearts as well for these things. Not so much to point fingers at others to say how bad all of those people are, but to expose our own sins that we might, might turn from them and might find hope in the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. This is the key to the book of Proverbs. When, when, when we began Proverbs, chapter 1 and verse 7, we said this verse is the key to all of Proverbs. It, it's, it's the foundation that runs through all of Proverbs. It says this, Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? Fearing God, realizing that we walk all of life in the presence of God. And one of the ways in which the fear of the Lord is fostered in our hearts is when we hate what God hates. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. Just right over another chapter. It says this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So hating evil is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. And so it all like, all like ties together. Because the fear of the Lord will lead us to, to fear what he fears. And so the question really comes, I mean, is to hate what God hates. So the question really comes this morning, do you fear God? And do you hate what God hates? Now, in considering this question, right, it can just lead us into darkness, dwelling upon our sin. It can lead to judgmentalism, lest we, when we despise the sins of others. So in order to take, take us out of that, this is my way of application, I plan on asking really a second question this morning as well. Do you love what God loves? Because just the categorization of the seven deadly sins led, led others to think about the, the seven life-giving virtues. Right? So also be good for us in our heart by way of application to consider the opposite of what Solomon is talking about in these seven things. Because that's really the, the true test of the gospel in our heart is not merely to hate what God hates, but to fill that with the love of what God loves. And know that this doesn't come naturally to any of us, because, um, you know, we, we are born sinners, rebellious, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. We're rebellious to God in His ways. And when it comes to, to believing and trusting in Jesus, that's when God transforms us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he changes us and gives us new desires. And, and that's at the core of our 
desires is this love for God and the love for his ways and the love for his kingdom. That's why we pray our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're praying for God and his glory to come in his kingdom. He loves his glory and we love his glory and we want it to come in heaven and we want it to come here on earth. So when God transforms us, we we desire his ways to come. And so these two questions as we go through these seven things are constantly going to be before us. Do you hate what God hates and do you love what God loves? Because the answer to these questions are really windows into our soul of whether we, we hold on to really what God hates and whether we just are, are, are lukewarm when it comes to loving what God loves. And I suspect as I ask this question that you're going to have really two responses. And the first is going to be this. In... in in deep honesty, it's going to be this. Is it God, I, I may hate those things, but my hatred may not be as deep as I wish it was. And I may love these things that you love, but my love is certainly not as high a love as I ought to have or as I want to have. And so as you, as you sift through those two things, like, you know what? God hates these things far more than I do, and I need to hate them more. And God loves these things far more than I do. And I need to, to love them more. Just may it cause you to fall in the grace of Christ. To plead with God's transforming power in our lives and in our hearts. That, that, that God would help us to love what God loves. And help us to hate what God hates. So we might be more and more conformed to the image of His beloved Son. Which is the aim and goal of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, before we actually go and look at these seven things, I want to talk a little bit about how we're going to approach this text. Because normally we work about the beginning of a text and we just kind of work through about the, the speed of the text. Letting each, each part of the text pull its, its own weight. Um, but this morning we're going to zoom past the first four verses. And bringing in verses 16 through 19, the last four verses, into focus. Because I think you can argue that verses 12 through 15 are really an illustration of these deadly sins. Um, in other words, you could easily outline this text this way. Verses 12 to 15, the illustration. And then verses 16 to 19, the sins. So let's, let's look at the illustration here. A worthless person, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. In verse 12, we're introduced to this man as a a worthless or wicked man. He's not a specific one. He's just a, a generic, illustrative man, if you will. Illustrating what a wicked man is like. His primary characteristic is he goes about with, with crooked speech. And Solomon mentions crooked speech in verse 17 and 19, calling it the lying tongue in verse 19 and call, 17, calling it a false witness in verse 19. And God hates crooked speech. In verse 13, we see this man winking with his eyes, signaling with his feet and, and pointing with his finger. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what that is. But, but I think you know enough when, when something's happening and someone, you know, is, is doing something devious and then they give you a little... That still carries through today. Uh, We don't really signal with our our feet so much. But we can point with our finger like. 
I think that's the idea because each of these speak about some kind of evil, sinister plan to carry out evil plans, which is in verse 14, with perverted heart he devises evil and continually sowing discord. So, so somehow these signals are like, are like evil, wicked sort of things that, that he does. And we see these things part of the, the seven deadly sins. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans and, and feet that make haste to run to evil. And at the end of verse 19, and one who sows discord among brothers. In fact, the parallel between verse 19 and verse 14 is exactly the same. Sowing discord. Verse 19 speaks about the one who sows discord. Same Hebrew words, same idea. Just spreading dissension and strife, disrupting unity in, uh, in the body or in the community. And, and I think that's a similar and the same thing is because the first four verses are the illustration of the list of the second four verses or the last four verses. And, and so we'll simply use them as such, as illustrations of the seven deadly sins. But there's one thing in the first four verses that's not mentioned in the last verses, and it comes in verse 15. It's really the end result of those who commit such sins. Therefore, Solomon writes of this wicked man who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, devises evil, sows discord, speaks with crooked speech. The end of this one, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he'll be broken beyond healing. I think that's talking about death or destruction. And so I think verse 15 gives more reason to embrace the title of my message this morning, seven deadly sins. Because they will lead to your destruction. They they will lead to your death. That's why we need to hate them in our hearts. We need to hate them like poison so that we don't take them into our souls and find our way to death. All right, so let's just start looking at these seven deadly sins. Uh, The first one, Solomon begins here, verse 17, with haughty eyes. He's talking about pride. That's why the the King James translates this word, these words, proud eyes. This is the, the proud look. The one that says, look at me. Look at all that I have done. And I have done it by myself, all on my own. This is the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar who stepped out on the roof of the royal palace there in Babylon, seeing that great city before him and saying, Daniel 4.30, Is this not great Babylon for which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I built it by my power for my majesty and there is pride. And God hates it. God's opposed to the proud. And if you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he humbled him for seven years, was out eating like an ox. Pride. And this is the pride of the Pharisees who loved the places of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And as they sat on those seats, I'm sure they had this smug look of pride on their face saying, look at me. Look at how religious I am. I have made it. I know the Bible really well. I know the Old Testament. And I live above all of you. That's pride. And to the Pharisees, Jesus condemned. Matthew 23, woe to scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you seven times. God hates the proud. He will bring them down. One of the most famous verses in all of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before, help me now, 
destruction or the fall. Pride goes before the fall, the haughty spirit before a fall. So the question really comes, right? Do you you hate what God hates? Do you hate the pride that's in your heart? Because we all have pride in our hearts. We, We all think much of ourselves. We all love ourselves. And we all prioritize our ways and the things that we want. Now, the opposite of this, right? The opposite of pride is humility. And humility is that virtue that looks away from ourselves and looks to God in dependence upon Him. And God says that I look upon the humble people with special favor. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. That is humble before God, not, not trying to compete with God in any sense, but knowing our rightful place in humility under the Lord. Contrite of spirit means what Jesus said, even the, the poor in spirit, the broken in spirit, understanding our sin. That's what God looks with favor upon. It's where we begin our walk with God, with humility. Looking not to our great works, but looking to Jesus and His great work. By trusting in Him for forgiveness of sins. Knowing that we cannot come to God on our own. As our pride might suggest. But we need Jesus to come to God. And we need Him to give us all the strength that we need to live. That's called grace. When Paul spoke about his own ministry. He says, by the grace of God I am that I am. Right? God's giving His power to live that I am. God's opposed the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Not only to come to God, but to live with God. So do you hate pride? Do you love humility? <clears throat> That's what this first sin is calling us to. How about the second one? A lying tongue. It's talking about a, a lack of, of honesty. One who deceives other people. This is one who says, over there, when it's really over here. This is one who, who speaks with crooked speech, as verse 12 mentions. Right, that, that, that's not straight. Crooked speech is like, like distorts it rather than just coming straightforward, honest. That's a, a lying tongue. These are the false prophets who prophesied during the days of Hezekiah when, when Babylon was coming upon the, the nation in the city of Jerusalem. It was Jeremiah who stood up and said that, that Hezekiah will come and conquer and you need to submit to the Babylonians. You need to realize you're going to lose. But it was the false prophets who spoke wrongly and they said, peace, peace. When there was no peace. That was a lying tongue. It was not straightforward. The lying tongue is Ananias and Sapphira who attempted to deceive the apostles by, by selling this property which is well and good and, and taking the property which is well and good and giving it some to the church which is well and good but they said they gave all. Trying to look more holy than they were and they died for their deception. God hates liars. Hates liars. And he'll bring them down. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will perish. Proverbs 19.9 God will destroy liars. They are part of those that go into the lake of fire. But the opposite of lying is truth. Right, good, thanks Thatcher. It's truth. And think about How God loves truth. When Jesus came to earth, He came full of grace and truth. 
He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said that knowing the truth is what sets you free. And he even said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus was the embodiment of truth. He never spoke a false word at all, ever. And not only God, does God love truth, but God loves truth tellers. He loves those who are honest in their dealings. You think about why do people lie? People lie because they want to cover up their sin. They want to cover up some wrongdoing that they've done, and so they, they deceive to get out of a situation. You show me a lie, and if I know enough or could ask enough questions, I could probably show you the sin that someone who's lying is seeking to cover up. That's all you gotta do. That's why I lie. That's why you lie. To cover up something. But here's the truth those who come to God don't need to cover up their sin. The glory of Jesus is that he forgives our sin. But here's the catch. He forgives us our sin when we're honest about our sin. If we confess, if we say we have no sin, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We simply need to acknowledge it. We simply need to confess it. We can be open about our sin. We don't need to hide it because forgiven in Jesus. Do you hate lies? Do you love truth? Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God loves? Let's continue on. Number three, we see haughty eyes, a lying tongue in verse 17. Our third one in verse 17 is injustice. The exact words of this are hands that shed innocent blood. It's talking about betrayal. It's talking about wrongdoing. It's talking about injustice. This is the way of Cain, who was jealous toward his brother Abel, who offered up an acceptable sacrifice to God. And Cain, for some reason or another, didn't. Probably, as Hebrews says, he didn't offer it up by faith. But he became jealous towards Abel. And he was angry towards Abel. And his countenance fell and the temptation was there and he rose up and shed his innocent blood on the ground. Shedding innocent blood was the way of Judas. He struck a deal with the religious leaders that he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And one night he brought the religious leaders to Jesus there in the garden and betrayed him with a kiss. And his blood then was shed. The most innocent blood there ever was was handed over by Judas, the hand that shed innocent blood. God hates those who shed innocent blood. He'll bring them down. Proverbs 14, 11, the house of the wicked will be destroyed. God hates injustice, right? And so extending this, not, not, not merely to murder, right? I don't think any of you are guilty of shedding innocent blood, although abortions... And I'm, I'm not naive to think that none of you have had an abortion here. Just one of those terrible things. God hates it. It's really injustice. That's what it is. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. And the opposite of injustice is justice. That's fairness and equity. And God loves justice. 
Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. The false balance is the, the balance that's just off just a little bit to shave a little bit with, with every transaction. Just a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and eventually you can reap a, a greater reward taking a dollar off of every transaction. That's a false balance. God hates it. But it says a just weight is his delight. When you are fair, when, when there's equity, when there's justice there, that delights God. God is delighted when we're fair. We do what we say and we don't overcharge a customer. We pay the full amount. We don't favor our friends, but give justice to all. That's especially true with the weak in our society. God, God has a, a special heart for orphans and widows and minorities. And we stand up for them and demand justice for them and protect them and care for them. The Lord is especially pleased, as James calls this true religion. Religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. We are never more like God than when we care for the down and out. And truth be known, this is us. We are down and out. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks about how, how God arranged his church. He, he didn't choose the, the wise or intelligent or the great or the strong or the noble. No, God chose the weak and the despised and the base. That's who we are. And therefore, we need to care for the weak and the despised and the base knowing that, that we are, and that, that ought to stir us to, to justice for all. And know that God is one who's absolutely just. And though maybe we have sinned in injustice, maybe we have afflicted the, the innocent, maybe we have shed innocent blood with our hands, just know that God can be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And there is, there is hope there. So you, you trust in Jesus who bore that sin in his body on the cross. Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you love justice and do you hate injustice? Well, let's go on. Number four and five in verse 18. We're going to take both of these together because they're practical synonyms and to try to Try to figure out the difference between twiddly-dee and twiddly-dum is sort of difficult to do here. We have evil plans in verse 18, and we have evil actions in verse 18. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. There we see wicked plans, and we see wicked actions. It's talking about those who plan their sin, think about their sin, and with full intent carry out their sin. Right? They, they think about the evil they're going to do. They're, they're going to plan their ways. They're going to, you know, whatever. They're going to rob the bank. And so they're going to think about their escape route and, and where exactly the, the vault is located and what time do they close and who's going to be there. And they plan this whole thing. And then they execute their plan willingly. Paul talks about these people in Romans chapter 1, verse 30 as those who are inventors of evil. They think about ways in which to be evil. And they, they plan it, and then they execute it, following through their sinful plan. These are the Israelites who grumbled at Moses. And finally, when he was up on the mountain receiving the law of God, but delayed, they turned to Aaron. And they planned and they schemed, and they said to Aaron, Up, oh, make us gods who will go before us. 
And Aaron said to them, well, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so Aaron took this gold and he fashioned it into a golden calf. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, devising idolatry and then walking in it, like doing everything, like, like taking donations of gold and putting it together and then putting up this golden calf for everybody to worship and then saying, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't the God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. But that is devising evil, thinking about ways to sin. Why don't, why don't we just make this idol and call it God? And then walking that way, that's, that's the way of the Pharisees. Who when Jesus was, was just beginning his ministry and starting to, to show miracles of, of just um, healing people, lepers, and demon-possessed people, and doing great wonders, and cop, cap it all off when he went into the synagogue and healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. That was the worst. And so Mark 3, verse 6, we read, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They thought, we got to destroy this man. We're planning this evil. And they executed it. I mean, it took several years to execute their plan. And which came about, of course, and they found a willing accomplice in Judas. But they went with him in the garden to arrest Jesus with clubs. Then they held a kangaroo court at night, bullied Pilate to have him executed, overcame the crowds, persuading them to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. God hates those who devise wicked plans. And he'll bring them down. The New Living Translation just even says it clearly, which I think is, is, is right, in Proverbs fourteen twenty two: If you plan to do evil, you will be lost. It's really the thrust of that verse. If you plan it, you will be lost. You'll be destroyed. Now you think about what's the opposite of planning and doing evil? Well, planning and doing good, I guess which shorthand you might think of as God's will. Those who love God's will will plan good and will carry out the good because God loves those who do His will. God loves those who, who plan righteousness and then walk in righteousness. I mean, that's exactly the opposite, right? Who, who take steps of preparation to do what it is they know is going to be good and then follow after those ways. You know, God loves it when we, when we plan things for him and organize a good cause i think even in our congregation in recent days we've known john underhill to plan the jail ministry to urge us in the jail ministry we've known amanda gishel calling us urging us to the the hike for life we've seen troy calling us to the rockford rescue mission we see missionaries all the time calling us to act right to give or to go or to send That's planning good, that's thinking good, that's carrying through with the good, and God loves that. The Bible calls this stirring up others. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's planning, thinking about how I can stir you up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, it's the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as the day draws near, right? Being together so that you can be with one another so I can think about plans to help you do love and good deeds. That's the opposite of making evil plans and carrying out with evil actions. And so simple question, do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? 
Do you love God's will? Or do you despise God's will for your life? Because God's will is not always easy. He calls us to the difficult things, to, to standing up for righteousness, to saying the hard things, to standing alone many times. It's not always the easiest thing, but it is the best thing. It is God's will for our life. Okay, sixth, we've seen haughty eyes, a lying tongue, injustice, evil plans, evil actions, and now we come with a false witness. Verse 19. In many ways, this is just like verse 17, which speaks about a lying tongue. But however, there's a slight difference here and that a lying tongue might be more general, just a lie in general. But this is a lie against another person. A false witness is what it says. It's a way of speaking falsely about other people, slandering, perhaps, if you will. David knew what this was about. He had those who were speaking falsely against him. And in Psalm 27, verse 12, he pleaded, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Especially against a a king or a ruler or a leader. Leaders, if you've ever led anything, oftentimes the, the bigger that gets, the more false witnesses come and they accuse. That's why leadership often is lonely at the top. Because of all the dissenting voices that come. And that's what David the king, he knew these false witnesses that breathed out violence against him. And Jesus knew that what this was about, the false witnesses against him. Remember when he was doing good and casting out all these demons and, and doing all sorts of good for people and healing people. And the Pharisees came up and they said, he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he casts out demons. And that's slanderous to the the highest degree because Jesus was not possessed by Beelzebul. He was not casting out demons by the prince of demons. He was God in the flesh. He was purity of purity. He wasn't Satan. God hates a false witness. And they will not go unpunished. In the end, the truth will prevail. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips endure forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. So see, God loves truth. And particularly here, we're talking about uh, a false witness against someone, speaking badly against someone. The opposite of that might be speaking good towards someone, encouraging someone, or what I might call being a faithful friend. Being a faithful friend. Being true and true all the way through. And the Proverbs speak quite a lot about faithful friends. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What that means, you got a friend and you're not going to speak falsely to them. You're going to speak the truth in their life with truth and love, of course. And that's the whole idea that makes them a friend is, is the love aspect there that keeps the truth in there. And words may hurt, but the faithful friend's words will heal. Or... Proverbs twenty seven seventeen iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Faithful friends sharpen one another and encourage one another on. This is encouragement. Is here is, is probably the opposite of a false witness. Right? It's not to encourage falsely, but to encourage rightly and truthfully. To speak truth into people's lives and such to encourage them and help them and build them up rather than just tearing them down. A false witness tears down, but encouragement builds up. I just asked, do you you love being a faithful witness? Do you love being an encourager? Do you you love speaking truth? 
Or do you hate the truth? And would you rather be a false witness that breathes out lies? In, in, our, in our days of the internet, false witness, I mean, you can just say anything you want. Slander any way you want. God hates false witnesses. Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God loves? Okay, last thing. We've seen haughty eyes, a lying tongue, injustice, evil plans, evil actions, a false witness, and now say discord. Verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. And again, we we saw that back in verse 14. The evil man continually sows discord. This is Absalom who uh, greeted those who entered the city of Jerusalem right there at the gate. And those who had ears to hear, he embraced them and he kissed them. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 15. And he would promise prosperity as he spread forth lies about his father, David the king. And in so doing, 2 Samuel 15, 6, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That is sowing discord day by day at the gate, speaking against the king and, and rallying the troops for himself. Um, these were the Jews who opposed the spread of the gospel. When, when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica and, and many in the city were persuaded and began following Paul and Silas, the Jews were jealous. And so they had to sow up this discord to be able to, to, to create this, this violence to, to get them out. They were jealous. And here's what they did. They took some wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. In other words, they went down to the train tracks and they grabbed just the, the basest, lowest people that they could find. And they brought them up and caused a stir and dissension, sowing discord to get them out of there. And that happened often with Paul in the city in Antioch. Paul preached there. Many of the city were persuaded in following him. Acts 13.50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Sowing discord so as to get them out, to keep them out. And sowing discord is the way of of wicked men. So what's the opposite of sowing discord? What's a good word? Peace, maybe? Unity? Both those words are, are, are really good. And God loves peace. He loves unity in the body. In fact, God calls us to peace and harmony in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the body, of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And, and there what Paul says is that, that to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, walking worthy of Jesus and being reconciled to him means seeking unity and peace in the church. In the congregation, not sowing discord. Right? When there's problems and differences, which obviously there are be, to, to deal with them in a way that doesn't create discord, that doesn't announce, that doesn't divide, but goes on your way well. And in order to do this, Paul says it requires humility, requires gentleness, requires patience, requires forbearance. Requires an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Just needs all these things. But God hates those who sows discord among brothers. And what an apt description that is oftentimes of the church, right? The church is filled with brothers and sisters. 
We show that discord. It is so hard. And it is so contrary with how to live out the gospel. But God loves peace. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Right? And if you experience, you know what it is like. And we have known that at Rock Valley Bible Church, the peace and the pleasantness of what it means to dwell in unity. God loves peace. In fact, when he sent his son Jesus, he was called the Prince of Peace. He brought peace to us through Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And the peace that we have with God is to be the peace that we have with others. So do you love peace? Or do you hate peace and sow discord? Because God hates it when people sow discord. Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God loves? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would take this dark passage of condemning sins. God, that you hate. God, that you will punish and you will destroy the the workers of iniquity, bringing calamity upon them suddenly and being broken beyond healing. And you will will deal with these people. And, And Father, I would pray that for all of us, God, I know that many of us, there is this heart that says, I don't hate as much as you hate, O God, and I don't love as much as you love. And so I pray that our our hate would go deeper towards these things, especially these things in us, that we would be true speakers and that we would delight in unity and we would delight in stirring others to love and good deeds. God, that in all our ways we would cut it straight. Uh, I pray, God, that that's what we would, would be. And Lord, that we would hate whenever we are contrary to those things in our, our own souls. God, I'm thankful for Jesus who gives light to these things. God, that we're not in the old covenant when we simply need to, to try harder and do better apart from the grace of God. But now we have the grace of God, which is in Christ Jesus, who will help us and transform us, and cause us to walk in your ways. And in that, oh God, we do rejoice. We pray you'd help us and stir us on God, in your time and your way. So bless us here at Rock Valley Bible Church. God, work among us and help us to hate these seven deadly sins. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.